0: Hey there, welcome to another edition of the Live Wire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank coming to you from my house in Bellingham, Washington. We got a fun show in store for you this week. Uh, my pal Chioki Iansen is going to stop by. Um he is like the voice of Public Radio. In fact, you have probably heard his voice more than any other person on Public Radio um because he reads the ads, which I don't know if we're allowed to call them ads, but you get the idea. Anyway, Chioki's going to be here. Uh, we are also going to talk to investigative journalist Leah Satili about her wildly popular and very fascinating podcast called Bundyville. Plus, we're going to hear some music from the talented and gone way too soon Justin Towns Earl. It's the Live Wire house party. Stick around. It all gets started right after this.
4: It's everyone's favorite boy genius, Lukey Hauser,
0: M.D. (laughs) Can I tell you that each weekend, as the show airs on radio stations all over the country, text messages start to roll into my personal cell phone of my actual friends who are going like, it's just Lucas membrane, (laughs) question mark. I'm going to leave it to the producers of the show to tell us when this particular bit has run its course.
4: Well, it's not just a
0: fluke. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness gracious. All right. um, Now that we're through this part of the program, which gives me a certain amount of anxiety, maybe we should uh, do the actual radio show. What do you say?
4: Yeah, why not?
0: Hey, Molly, are we recording?
4: Well, that's affirmative, doctor.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Take it away, Elena.
4: (laughs) From PRX, it's LiveWire. Recorded from our actual houses, welcome to the LiveWire House Party. This week, the voice of public radio, Chioki Ianson, and journalist, Leah Satilli. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, live and direct from a small room just off its kitchen, the host of LiveWire, Lou. Thank
0: you so much, Elena Passarello. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the LiveWire House Party. Of course, we like to kick the show off uh, by uh, asking the LiveWire audience a little question about their week, and then they respond via social media. This week, we asked folks, tell us about something you wish you'd been talked out of. Mm -hmm. I have to pick one of the, I don't know, hundreds if not thousands of things (laughs) in my life that fit into that exact category.
4: You're a very impulsive person. Right, like you, you often don't seek counsel before making a decision. Is that right? No,
0: I actually actively avoid counsel before <laughs> because I know that if I ask anyone if something's a good idea, they'll probably tell me no, mm-hmm. it's not. Mm-hmm. So I just usually go for it. Um, one thing I, I, I definitely wish somebody would have talked me out of uh, when the pandemic started was I just bought huge amounts of dried beans, <laughs> like in bulk. Yes, I just have bags and bags of dried beans. Over in the laundry room. I don't know what I thought was going to happen. They also sell canned beans that have already been like seasoned and are ready to go. You don't need to soak yeah. them in any water for any. And those are still very much available in the grocery stores. I could have just bought some beans that I could open the can and start eating. No, I went to like the biblical level. Yeah. Like beans that are weeks away from being edible. What about you? What do you what do you wish you'd been talked out of?
4: Well, um, I'm the opposite of you. I seek so much counsel, I often end up kind of completely inactive. Paralyzed by all the feedback? Yeah, or I'm like, you know what, I'm just not going to do anything. But, uh, I, you know, I really wish, not to be too serious, that somebody had talked me out of feeling conservative and kind of ashamed of my body when I was in my mm-hmm. 20s. <laughs> I was always like, oh, you know, you can't wear that bathing suit or... Mm-hmm. You need to wear the longest pair of shorts possible, which I've now learned is actually, you know, if you're a lady with thick thighs that save lives, a shorter short is actually more flattering. But it was such a waste of time because I worried too much. And also, I think I kind of looked okay. And now I kind of wish I would have, like, you know, gone a little more Megan Thee Stallion and a little less Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
0: (laughs) With my (laughs) every time, every time you look at a picture, I mean, from 10, 15 years ago, it's like, wait, what was I insecure about? Yeah, it's it's all fine, you know? Yes, I know. It's like, let's be nice to ourselves. Yes. And let's also realize that this is probably as hot as we're ever gonna be. Yeah,
4: I mean, I intend on getting hotter, but like, there are certain things in the lava lamp that is my physique that are just not gonna (laughs) bubble back up to the top. I'm gonna be one of those hot 70 year old women with like amazing scarf game.
0: Maybe I'll have some like unexpected fourth act of <laughs> of silver foxiness that I just I can't see coming. <laughs> hey, what are the um, what are the live wire listeners saying that they wish they might have been talked out of?
4: Uh, here's one from Mike in Ohio. Mike wishes that he had been talked out of his tattoo of a gorilla. It was my first one, he says, and I was drunk in Biloxi. <laughs>
0: <laughs> They're not supposed to give you a tattoo if you're drunk. And I know I know this from personal experience because <laughs> the first tattoo that I, I ever got is, is this star that's on my forearm. Oh, I'm yeah. holding it up on Zoom, Elena, so you can kind of see yes, it. Yes, beautiful red star. But part of it is not healed correctly. This is because... I was, I don't know, 20-something years old. I was very nervous about how much it was going to hurt. Mm-hmm. I went in and signed all the paperwork, sober, then went back to the car and shotgunned like six beers. <laughs> <laughs> and then my blood was too thin oh, because God. of having had all the oh, beer. God. So it never quite healed correctly. Point being, you're they're not supposed to let you do it if you've had too many drinks. <laughs> that being said, I, I see people that have a bunch of tattoos uh, and I kind of think, you know, I like that you just assumed that it was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Like there's an optimism to that because, you know, a lot of people won't get a tattoo because they think, well, what if I regret it someday? I I, I admire people that are just kind of like, you know, I don't know. I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. It's just a body. Give me another Michelob. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I say to that listener, show a little self-love to that gorilla tattoo. That's the theme for the show this week is everybody be nice to yourselves. Yeah. All right. Uh, this is, of course, the Live Wire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello there in Corvallis, Oregon. Um, you know, Elena, what uh, being stuck at home during a pandemic is actually pretty good for, her, and that is uh, binging on a really good podcast. Oh, yeah. Like, because we've got a lot of time. I'm doing a lot of yard work. I'm doing a lot of, like, just projects I've more or less invented for myself to have <laughs> something to do. Um, and uh, a podcast that I, I binged and found just so fascinating Uh, is actually hosted by our next guest. It's called Bundyville. Uh, Leah Satilli is the journalist and host of that show. Uh, And it has been downloaded millions of times. It was actually named one of last year's best podcasts. Mm. Um, So let's take a listen to this. This is a conversation you and I had with Leah back at the Alberta Rose Theater last year. Check this out. Hi, Leah. Welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: I read somewhere that you described yourself as being an expert on the discontent of the rural American West.
2: You could say that. How yeah. do you
0: end up with that beat?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I've, I've For a long time, I've sort of specialized in covering people sort of living at the extreme edges of society. So for a long time, I was a music reporter, and that huh. just like sort of presents itself. Lots of strange, interesting people. But the more I have progressed in my career, I've kind of hung out a lot in rural America and talked to a lot of really angry people.
0: How did, <laughs> how did the Bundy family first sort of make their way under your radar?
2: So in 2016, a lot of you probably know, uh, two of the Bundy brothers took over the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in southeastern Oregon, and um, the whole point of that, what they called a protest, I put in quotes there that you can't see on the radio, I guess you are doing, was that they wanted to see uh, these ranchers pardoned um, from being in jail for a series of events I won't get into, but they also were advocating for public lands to be transferred back to the states. So they didn't think the federal government should own land. And in order to sort of push this, this agenda, they took over a federal property Um, for 41 days. And I was here in Oregon. Uh, I heard about it. I was watching Office reruns in my pajamas one day. And I heard about this takeover of this federal property. And basically, it kind of changed my career. I started working on this beat Did you basically
0: drive down there to Burns, Oregon?
2: No, I actually didn't cover the standoff itself. I covered, I started covering it for the Washington Post here in Portland when the federal trial started. So I was just kind of dispatched to court by my editors to see, you know, the Bundys get paraded in in shackles, and then it was just infinitely fascinating to me from there. So I just kept pitching more and more stories and here I am like four years later.
0: (laughs) Let's for for some of the folks who maybe are unfamiliar with this family, let's start with the dad. Okay. Cliven. Uh, He first sort of became somebody known nationally because he had these cattle that are grazing on federal lands in Nevada. Right. And he didn't want to pay the fees to have his cattle graze on the grass that we, the American people own. And there was a big standoff down there, right? Like, right, in 2014. What, what's what's his story?
2: So Cliven Bundy um, is a longtime person who participated in a thing called the Sagebrush Rebellion, which essentially is kind of what these his sons were standing off on. They want to see federal lands transferred out of the federal government's hands and back to the state governments in Oregon, Nevada, et cetera. Um, so in 2014, because he had not been paying his grazing fees for 20 years, the federal government came and were, they were going to do a roundup and repossess the cattle, just like if you don't pay for your car payment, the bank comes and takes your car. Um, so in this case, when the federal agents arrived to orchestrate this roundup, they were met with hundreds of armed people protesters supporting the Bundys and saying, you know, we will not back down and you need to let his cattle go. And they did. And, and in fact, those cattle are still grazing out there right now.
0: That is one of the craziest parts of the story. And you talk about it in, in the Bundyville podcast. I mean, these guys are getting away with a lot of stuff that if they were not white dudes, mm-hmm. <laughs> they would not be getting away with. Like the fact that Clavin Bundy was basically the charges were dropped, right? Ultimately,
2: so, uh, no, the charges weren't dropped. So, in the case of Cliven Bundy, there was a mistrial. So, what happened was um, he and his almost all of his sons were on trial in this, you know, very very large trial in Las Vegas, and the judge threw it out because the prosecutors had failed to disclose evidence that actually made the Bundys look good. So, um, so when when the Bundy's attorneys found that, they brought it forth and the judge thought that it was enough to to actually throw out the case so the charges weren't dropped it was a mistrial so they walked
0: I guess it's just surprising that considering he was his cows were grazing on federal land he was in arrears for like a million dollars when the government came he had a bunch of people with machine guns and then the government was like okay good point and the cows are still there and he's not in jail. That's just, like, kind of mind-blowing.
2: It certainly sends a message. And so with, with the 2016 occupation here in Oregon... Right. That Which was his sons. Those were his sons, and they were acquitted by a jury of all charges. So um, between an acquittal and a mistrial, it sends a message, I think, to the patriot movement that, you know, you can take up arms and get what you want.
0: We're talking to Leah Satili. The podcast that uh, she's the host of is called Bundyville. It's amazing. It's about... the Season one is really about this family, the Bundy family. And then season two is about all of the stuff that this patriot movement has really spawned. And one of the things that comes up in the show is, speaking of Cliven Bundy not being convicted on this uh, these charges, the FBI is also kind of not helping their case in certain ways. Like there are some of these militia groups, there's like four guys and three of them are undercover agents. Yeah. Is it a militia if most of the people are undercover agents?
2: I, I mean, it's a great question. I'm, I'm not really sure that it is. And I think that this was something that I realized over the course of the reporting was, you know, when when people heard about the 2016 takeover of the refuge, it was the Bundy militia. And as I found out, you know, in my reporting, the Bundys aren't actually a part of any militia. And a lot of these militia groups are kind of one or two guys. Um, or in, in some cases, they're much larger groups. But you do sort of see this really interesting game of tit-for-tat being played. The federal government will maybe become aggressive in some way or that the that the patriot movement will perceive as aggressive and then the patriot movement will respond. So it's just this kind of game of volleyball that's been going on. Um, like there's this symbiotic relationship that they kind of need each other.
0: This is the Live Wire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, We are at our homes right now, but we're playing a conversation that we recorded last year on stage in Portland, a conversation with journalist and podcaster, Leah Satili, talking about her really incredible podcast, Bundyville. We got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back.
1: Vacations, weddings, birthdays and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre alcohol now. ZBiotics pre alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works when you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. ZBiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night. Drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to Zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use LiveWire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to Zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code LiveWire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to z for sponsoring this episode and our good times.
0: Welcome back to the Live Wire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarell. It's nice to see you, Elena.
4: Nice to see you too.
0: Let's uh, get back to our conversation uh, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater last year with journalist Leah Satilli talking about her podcast, Bundyville. Take a listen to this. Um, the, the kind of umbrella term for a lot of the people who come up in your podcast uh, is the patriot movement. And they're these folks who consider themselves to be called oath keepers, uh, sovereign citizens. They're all people that are deeply suspicious of the government, right? I mean, right. is that the organizing principle for yeah, most of I them? Yeah, I think
2: it's that they all sort of congeal around this idea that the federal government is, you know, uh, there's like a shadowy cabal in the background. Um, you'll hear a lot of conspiracies about like the new world order and things like that. So they they believe that the federal government is up to something and and they don't like it.
0: And then sometimes it kind of is, right? Like that's I mean, well
1: <laughs> Uh-oh.
0: Can you guys stay for the next six hours? <laughs> A lot to unpack from that statement I just made. Um it, particular in, in, in the case of, of some of these people from the, the the Patriot movement, it's like because the federal government is investigating, because the federal government is infiltrating their groups, uh and, and not always acting um, you know, completely ethically, their paranoia sort of Becomes in some way not paranoia because it is really happening.
2: Right, I, I think that that was uh, something that I learned pretty quickly in covering this this kind of gigantic story. When I was covering the trial here in Portland, I would hear people sort of say something and in, in line going in, and I'd be like, "God, that sounds so crazy," but then they would turn out to be right. You know, things that um, they were talking about informants and the the refuge was just filled with with federal informants. And you're
0: talking about the Malheur refuge. I'm talking refuge about the, the Malheur refuge. Burns. Yeah,
2: and. Um, turns out there were like 13 informants there and they were supplying, you know, tons of information. So, um, so yeah, I think you're right. There were times where things that seem like conspiracies actually were real. And then there are plenty of times that lots of those conspiracies are, are just that. They're conspiracies.
0: There's kind of a, a sort of patron saint now of the movement, this guy, uh, Robert Lavoy Finnicum. Right. He was the only person who died as a result of the Malheur occupation, right? What right. happened with him and where does he occupy sort of in the imagination of these people?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, Lavoie's story is super interesting. Um, he came to the refuge after he'd gone to the Bundy Ranch standoff, Clive and Bundy's, you know, standoff with the government in 2014 and really got excited about the patriot movement and standing up against the government and tyranny and that sort of thing. So he arrived in 2016 to the refuge and he was something of a leader, but also kind of a voice of reason. You'll see lots of media Interviews with him, and uh, just kind of a calm, cool, collected guy in an otherwise sort of tinderbox of a situation. So um, uh, he, twenty some odd days into the standoff, he fled a uh, traffic stop where they were trying to arrest the leaders of the occupation. He drove away at high speed, jumped out of the car, yelling "Shoot me! Shoot me!" Tried to reach into his jacket multiple times, and he was shot and killed. And um, you know, they were the only shots fired during the refuge standoff. And he's become something of a martyr for the movement. You'll see, you know, I talk about it in season two, all through the movement, you know, people have tattoos of his cattle brand. They wear hats and shirts and stickers on their cars. And it's really all about justice for Lavoie at this point. So this is, again, that kind of game of tit for tat that we see with the Waco standoff and Ruby Ridge and these kind of times where the federal government has shot people. Um, Again, you know, the movement got what it wanted with 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 Lavoie they got a, a, a new martyr
0: uh, this is live wire we're talking to Leah Satilli. her podcast is Bundyville um, about the, uh, the the sort of patriot movement patriot I guess in quotes they've branded themselves that because they feel like they're the true patriots sure. um, the people in this country seem to be falling along urban rural lines more and more and um, do you think there is only going to be more of this kind of thing, whether it's the Bundys or someone else?
2: Well, I think it's important for people to know that the you know this movement didn't start with the Bundys. They just are kind of the latest flashpoint, so like I mentioned, Ruby Ridge. But I do think that um It isn't necessarily an urban-rural thing. And I think that that's one thing that uh, I definitely wanted to do a second season of Bundyville to talk about that, that a lot of these conspiracy theories that maybe were held by people that we saw occupying the Malheur Refuge are really things that people post on Facebook that maybe originated in the patriot movement or originated in, in, in movements that people would say, like, I would never go and take over a refuge or I would never go and point a gun at the government. But these theories espoused by those sorts of people are becoming more and more commonplace. And we see that a lot with our president right now, that there's somebody that's sharing really, really fringe conspiracy theories in a a way that makes them seem almost mainstream. So that's kind of this weird sort of um, upside-down land we're living in, is these things that were once in the shadows are kind of not anymore.
0: How do you cover that as a journalist? Like, there's this one um, really memorable scene where you go... I think, to like a Denny's in a truck (laughs) stop. And you're talking to this guy who's like kind of seen as a very militant and very dangerous militia leader. Right. And he is on some level starts off seeming kind of almost likable in a way, a little bit like he was, you know, entrapped by the government. But then he just starts spewing a bunch of just like racist, awful, horrible things. Right. And there are all these, and we've all been in a conversation with someone where they're just throwing things out that you can't really refute because you don't like, you can't show them a piece of paper that shows that Sharia law is not taking over 70% exactly. of American cities. How do you as a, as a journalist even sort of maintain your equilibrium in those conversations? Uh, asking for a friend called me, <laughs> who is, uh, has to know, go to some family things later.
2: Very yeah. carefully. <laughs> In that particular interview that you're talking about, um, I have the beauty with the Bundyville Project of working with another reporter, Mm. uh, Oregon Public Broadcasting, Ryan Haas. He's a great reporter. Yeah, shout out to
0: OPB and Long Reads, by the way. Amen.
2: Yeah. And in that particular interview, I learned pretty quickly with that interview subject, Bill Keebler, that he uh, doesn't really like women. So a lot of the things that he posts on social media are about women and that sort of thing. So when I would ask questions, he would answer Ryan so we learned pretty quickly, I think, sort of looking at each other, that this there was a little bit of a good cop, bad cop situation that we could play. So um, Ryan started asking the questions that he would get an easier answer, or he could ask a tough question that he would get the right answer, I guess, out of, or a truthful answer. But then, for me, there was a moment where he's talking about how Trump isn't going to come after militias, and he's not going to come after patriots. Basically, he's patriots. fine.
0: He would be really upset if Obama had declared martial law. Side note, that wasn't going to happen. But if Trump did it, he'd be fine with it because he's not going to come after the good guys.
2: And so I say, you mean? do you mean he's not going to come after white people? And he did not react very well to that but you know, all the context of that interview, which you can hear, is that's exactly what he means. Right. so yeah. so that was the sort of question that I was like, he already doesn't like me, so I will just ask these questions, and you know, I always say like to my journalism students and stuff, um, you save your kicked out of the room questions for the end, you yeah. know, so maybe that's what you guys are gonna do here for me, <laughs> but like
0: yeah, <laughs> we actually
2: we actually kind
0: of have a doozy here, Leah.
2: You save those for the end. So I just figured, why well, yeah. save them for the end? I'll just ask him now. He doesn't already, he already. You'd already
0: had your moons over my hammy. They'd brought the check. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right, exactly. You were ready to
0: leave that yeah. Denny's. Yeah.
2: So, um, but I mean, as a rule, I think it's sort of a case by case thing. Um, you know, I've interviewed lots of people and I kind of let people go on and on a little bit long sometimes to try and hopefully get to the answer that I'm, you know, or the question that I'm hoping to ask.
0: Uh, you and the other folks working on this show, Bundyville, have spent a lot of time steeping in some pretty dark stuff. Right. What is your next project? Something involving ice cream, possibly puppies?
2: (laughs) It's a great, actually a great question. I was just having a discussion about backstage that, you know, I'm a freelancer, so I always am kind of hoping that I, you know, do something that people like enough or that it does well or makes a change, that it begets new work. That doesn't seem to be happening all the time. Really? So I'm always... Uh, kind of not sure what I'm going to do next. You know, I know what I'm interested in. It's just a matter of getting somebody in the national media to care. And it happens to be that I write a lot of stories that take place in the West. And right now, you know, people are pretty focused on the Beltway.
0: So- well, if only you were on a radio show that's on hundreds of stations yeah. around the West. Yeah. <laughs> Hire Leah Satilli, She's amazing. And the show Bundyville is incredible. Please check out both seasons. Leah, thank you for thank being you. on the show. You. Appreciate it, That was Leah Satilli from back in December of last year talking to us on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater about her podcast, Bundyville. This is the Live Wire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, As we like to do each week, we asked the listeners a question. We asked them to tell us about something you wish you had been talked out of Uh, What are folks reporting they wish they could have been talked out of, Elena?
4: Here's one from Samson, who regrets moving during the pandemic. Uh, I'm assuming that means moving your household, not just like moving your body.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I regret not moving my body for about two solid months.
4: Can you imagine... Like, the anxiety and stress of moving is so much for me. Like, even when it shows up on my social media feed, like, four years ago today, you drove three cats across the country. I still get, like, the deja vu,
0: or my heart rate goes up. Yes. Uh, What is it about moving? I think it's that you have to, well, if you're me, confront all of the stuff that you've just been putting in boxes, like Mm -hmm. paperwork or... Old yearbooks or, I don't know, birthday cards, Mm -hmm. what have you. Moving, I just think it brings up a lot of emotion because Mm -hmm. it just really gets to the core of how we are in the world. Also... Um, helping your friends move is, I think, above giving them a kidney. Like, (laughs) I will give someone a kidney before I will help them move.
4: And I bet during a pandemic, like Samson had to do, it's always hard to find friends to help you, but now I bet it's Mm -hmm. quite difficult.
0: Actually, you know what? That's a silver lining. Hmm. That if anybody asks me to help them move, I can say, Have you noticed there's a pandemic on? Like, it's a pretty convenient excuse for not doing it. There you go. (laughs) What else are the uh, listeners saying?
4: Uh, Here's one from Alicia. Alicia uh, wishes she had been talked out of getting set up with a guy by one of her friends. Mm. So, uh, I don't know. Have you ever been set up?
0: No. Nobody has ever set me up with anyone else, which I never thought about what an insult that was until this moment. Like, no one's ever been like, hey, you know who would be great for this person? Luke Burbank. I've also been in like, I'm like a serial monogamist. So Mm. I have been in one relationship or another since, you know, seventh grade. (laughs) Aw. All right, one more uh, quick one here. What do the listeners wish they'd been talked out of?
4: This is a one-word response from Jocko. (laughs) Jocko wishes that they've been talked out of college. Wow. Is it that the college itself was bad or the college experience was bad? Or is it like a, like, I I have a hard time, I guess, as somebody who's been in college for the past
0: like 22 years. (laughs) And is a college professor. (laughs) How can you write it all off? It's like writing off like the universe. I was the first person in my family that went to college. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was actually really useful for me because Mm. I got my first job cuz it was a work study job at the university i went to at the radio station mm-hmm. so it was very good for me but also i had a 3 year old mm-hmm. i was just trying to like survive every day and get this thing over with oh <laughs> This is the Live Warehouse Party. Okay, you may not recognize the name Chioki Iansen immediately, but you will probably recognize the voice. He's this guy. This
3: message comes from NPR sponsor Patreon, allowing creators to build real,
0: sustainable income. Yeah, he's the the person that does, I think we call it the underwriting in public radio because we're classy like that. We don't do ads. (laughs) But he is the voice of a lot of the underwriting on public radio. Uh, And when he's not doing that... He is a motorcycle enthusiast, he's a philosopher, Uh, he teaches African-American studies at Virginia Commonwealth University, and he was nice enough to travel all the way across the country last year to come from Virginia out to Portland to hang out with us at the Alberta Rose Theater. So take a listen to this. Hello, everyone. How you doing? It's just like a superpower. <laughs> Chioke, welcome to the show.
3: I am very happy to be here. This is my first time in Portland.
0: Yeah, you guys have rain. <laughs> you hadn't heard, um, Chioki, You are an academic. Sure. Were you a? You're a professor. You're a very bright guy. Were you a voiceover? person before you got tapped to have this job for NPR uh so
3: I guess that I when I as soon as I got to college I went around to the radio station and I did radio stuff so I had like a I had a slow jams show
2: <laughs> really <laughs> yeah
3: I did actually I did the same thing that Marvin like gay did where I went straight from like gospel to slow jams so I, first I had a gospel show and then I had like the the late night Kind of like you know, a Dina Howard, yeah. Jodeci, right. slow jams show. Yeah, a little, a little woo for Jodeci out here. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so you, so you did some college radio, uh, but w- were you auditioning for this job? Like, how did this come about exactly? Oh man, it was super
3: random. I was doing some podcasty stuff with my 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 podcast partner. Kelly Jones, she's super dope. Um, and we, we ended up at the story lab at NPR, and we pitched our story, our like podcast idea, and in the audience was like the people who work on the underwriting team, right? And uh, a, very, a very kind of wise dude named Izzy Smith was like, hey kid, I, here's my card, I need you to do an audition. And I was like, for what? I don't know what's going on. And um, yeah. And so then, and then, like, months later, I did this audition, and then they offered me the...
0: What did they... What did you actually... Was it, like, lumber liquidators? What did you have to read?
3: I, I can't remember, but it was definitely something that was already on the rotation. In
0: rotation. So did you get the sense of what you were really trying out for at that point?
3: Yeah, yeah. But that, at that point, I knew. And, it was, and you know, it was crazy because, like, the underwriting voice on NPR is, like, the most heard voice because it's after everything and in the middle of everything and et cetera. Like, some would say it's a little too played um, and so, and so, and so for me, like, as a, like, I was one of these nerds who was like in the driveway, like, like not getting out of the car, because yeah. I wanted to hear at the end of the radio show. Right. Like I, I was like one of those guys. And so then the, the-
0: listen, these people paid money <laughs> to be at a thing that will be on the radio for free this weekend. Okay. They're with you. Yeah, they're-
3: You all are ridiculous.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So so, you were really into public radio.
3: I was was and am really into public radio. And so then uh, to have this this gig, it's it's, it's strange and surreal because the, the way that I used to know it was in PR was when I would hear, like, the underwriting guy come on, right? And so it's very strange and kind of humbling to be a part of now the underwriting team.
4: Do you ever get voice recognized? Does somebody ever hear your voice and go, oh, I know you?
3: I do, but it's only ever in close proximity to people like these people over here.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> like public radio fans. Yeah. Right?
0: There are some yeah. hot zips for that. Right. Some target-rich environments where, like, you you know, like, if you're in a used bookstore.
3: Yeah. yeah probably yeah, yeah, yeah. they might. Or, or, the, or the Chase Bank Auditorium in downtown Chicago.
0: Speaking of which. <laughs> right? Okay, speaking of which, Choki, you and I met uh, for the first time because uh, you were filling in, like at the total last minute, for Bill Curtis yep. as the announcer on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and you did such a good job; it was incredible. But like, were you nervous? You seemed pretty chill.
3: I mean, I was as nervous as a human could be. <laughs>
0: really? Yeah.
3: I mean, first off, just just to, to be clear, I was I had been harassing anyone I knew that had worked for Wait, Wait for like months. Like, hey, you know what you should do is uh, let me on the show.
2: Okay.
3: <laughs> now, to be clear, I never thought this would happen. It was, it was a joke to me. Um, but then uh, one night I was like in my pajamas going to sleep and I got a call from Ian Chillog, the executive producer of Wait Wait. He was like, hey, man, uh, so uh, do you want to? And I was like, when? And he was like, Tomorrow. <laughs> So, yeah, I was like, I was totally, totally shook. Like, I mean, you know, yeah. for me to step in for, oh, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, Bill Curtis, who, who like, stepped in after Carl Castle. Like, yeah. oh, yeah, sure. Like, throw old Chokey in the mix.
0: <laughs> um, we're talking to Choki Iansen. He is one of the voices of NPR Underwriting. But let's be honest, the best one. Um, a lot of people... Uh, you know hate the sound of their own voice, or if you hear you know a message you left on someone 's answering machine, which it 's not the nineties, so I guess it doesn 't happen anymore but <laughs> I-, I will even say to the degree that I will occasionally catch my voice on the radio unexpectedly, it is horrifying you 're on n p r five times every hour twenty four hours a day are Are you used to it yet
3: no no no, no no, no really so, so part of my problem is that. I also love NPR podcasts. And so uh, I'll put on, like, a podcast and be, like, listening very intently. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then, you know, now they don't even say after the break. Well, they just, like, stop, and then the underwriting plays. And so then I'll be thinking about the story and then suddenly hear myself selling me. <laughs> yeah, no. Why am I suddenly talking? No, no, no. It's, like, it's jarring. It's not, it's not great. I think that... Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if everyone who's in the broadcasting thing has a thing about their like, their own voice, but I know that I don't like hearing my own voice because I always feel like, oh, I could have done that better. And so then, so then therefore, what I'm hearing is just like a record of my failure.
0: Yeah, I mean,
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: I am get out of my brain, Chioke. <laughs> I will actively turn the radio station if this show is on. Don't do that, please. At home. Yeah, no. Please no. keep listening. Yeah, please listen to us. Please. Yeah. We just don't listen to us. That's all. Yeah. Um, you, uh, you are you're teaching a podcasting class at yeah, Virginia Commonwealth? Yeah, it's called uh,
3: Podcasting While Black. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Once again, Africana Studies is itself a kind of methodology that takes into account the works of the African diaspora, right? Like, it's a thing that anybody can study. It's a thing that probably some of y'all should be studying. Yeah. Um, And, you know, that whole thing, right? Um,
0: Yeah, but the... What are the particular challenges or the things that you're trying to teach these students about podcasting while black?
3: Well, the basic conceit of the class is not really about the podcasting itself, but is about like methods of explaining yourself. And so what I say is that, okay, well, here are these thinkers from the African diaspora, like, and we use Martin Luther King, Frederick Douglass, and Audre Lorde. And we say, let's examine the way that they explain things. Let's examine the way that they structure their speeches and their papers, and then you can mirror that structure in your own kind of podcast pilot. So it's a so it's a the the core is a studying of, of rhetoric, and then around that is all the technical stuff that goes into producing a podcast. Everyone who doesn't have a podcast thinks it's mad easy to have a podcast, yeah. and you just go in and you just hit record, and then you just like talk about the stuff that you like and all that. And so, then the first day of class, I'm like that sucks. <laughs> you cannot do that in my class. You have to do the following things. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a, of a, of a shock for, for, for some students who had that myth about podcasting.
4: Who do you think rhetorically would be the best podcaster of those three thinkers that you named based on the way that they structure their arguments?
3: I think Frederick Douglass would have a good run. <laughs> um, I think you'd have a good run. I mean, so the, the, whole, the whole thing about the way that Douglas frames, uh, there's this or- oration that he did in the, the 4th of July oration. And so, like, he kind of structures it where the meaning of the speech is, like, hidden, and it only, like, unfolds itself in the second half of the, of the speech, right? And so, and so then because of that, it, it does that thing where, that a good narrative, a good story does, where it kind of, like, sucks you in, and then it does a subversion, And so that in of itself is a good kind of explanatory method, especially if you're worried about perhaps winning the crowd to your side or or, or that kind of thing. You see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Okay.
4: I like what you're doing, too, with having someone that's not of your generation or their generation, like Frederick Douglass or Audre Lorde, and having a, a, a younger person look at someone generations ago and finding themselves in the way that they structure arguments? Because that's got to teach you too, right? About the way that they're breaking apart the world, you know?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, look, there's a kind of, you know, universalism in in the classic texts, right? Like there's a reason that really old stories still appeal to us. And there are methodologies for thinking that were laid out by people thousands of years ago that are still working quite strong. And so then the, the, the task then for us as, as people of modernity is to sift through the past and try and figure out what remains useful and what the secrets of reflection and, and reason and explanation might be that we can kind of carry forward, right?
0: Yeah. Do you ever have to just play the I'm the voice of NPR card with your students? And does that get you any cred at all? They could
3: not care less. <laughs> They don't care at all. Like, I mean, seriously, you know, I, I, I'll sometimes be like, guys, no, trust me. Like, I really, like, I, like, I do stuff, you know. <laughs> and then, and, and they'll be like, what kind of shoes are those? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, right. it's, re- it's real rough out there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> all right, Choki, you are the guy who reads the ads on NPR, and then presumably, because of your dulcet tones, those companies sell a lot of whatever it is that they make, there are some others, though, that could really use your help. For instance, people selling stuff on Craigslist here in Portland. <laughs> stuff that nobody wants. We were hoping you could lend your advertorial vocal skills in a little project that we're calling Craig's Mist.
5: Can't sell my
0: stuff. Stuff. Live Wire House Band, everybody. So, Chioki, we have these, these ads from Craigslist here in Portland, and we were wondering if you would mind just reading them in that classic Chioki Ianson style that we all know and love. Um, I also want you to know that we had to forward these to standards and practices at NPR. <laughs> so these have all been cleared. If you choose to, you're allowed to read them But you also don't have to, you have agency. Oh boy, here we go.
3: (laughs) Extremely used dog bed, $10. (laughs) Dog has definitely broken this in, but it's still totally good. Are there stains? Yes. (laughs) Smells? Very much so. (laughs) Will your dog notice? Maybe. <laughs> Price to move. Bring some gloves. There
0: you go. Somebody's gonna buy that as soon as this goes out of oh, here. Yeah.
4: I'm interested now. I know, I, right?
0: Yeah. All right. Okay.
3: Luke, this one's gonna be for you.
0: This is Chioki Anson giving one of these Craigslist ads a glow up. Here we go. Need a Zelda master?
3: World's best Zelda player will coach you for $5 an hour. Watch me play and learn for yourself. Or you play and I can help you get through the hard parts. Once in a lifetime opportunity to be educated in person by a certified Zelda master. Where? Bitcoin only. <laughs>
0: I think we have, time for, we have time for one more. I'll let you choose between free brunch you in and someone who's selling a human-sized hamster wheel. Unbelievable. But we need you guys. You guys, right. we need complete silence while this is happening so the people selling this stuff can use the tape. Yeah. <laughs> human-sized
3: hamster wheel. Pretty sure it can support a human up to 200 pounds. Have not actually tested it out. Full disclosure, we were very high when we thought this up and built it. <laughs> also available, 50 pounds of shredded
0: newspaper. I mean, what can't this guy class up? Chioki Iansen? everybody. That was Chioki Iansen recorded in December of last year at the Alberta Rose Theater. Uh, this right here is a Livewire house party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we got to take a quick break, but I hope you can stick around because when we come back, we are going to hear a song from Justin Towns Earl, who left the earth much too soon this week. Stay with us. This is Livewire. Hey, special thanks this episode to Zach Bonsall of Portland, Oregon, and Carrie Bouchard of Fort Worth, Texas. Zach and Carrie are part of the LiveWire member community, and they generously support the show with a donation each month, which we very much appreciate. It's a big part of how we are able to do this program. So, Zach and Carrie, here is the finest applause that $5.99 can buy you by way of my little sound effect machine. Uh, really and truly, though, thank you so much for helping keep the show going. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to the LiveWire House Party. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. Um, We decided at the last minute to change our planned musical guest this week uh, because we got the news that Justin Towns Earl passed away at the age of 38. Uh, He was so talented and his music, I have to say, Elena, was really just a big part of the soundtrack of my life for like the last 10 years or so. Um, I was a huge fan of his. And then he moved to Portland with his family. So we were able to have him on Livewire and he came out after the show and was hanging out with us at the after party. And I don't get that starstruck typically, but I have this intense memory of trying to just act very normal and chill while chatting with him <laughs> about life and you know his experience and everything. Um, he was really warm and friendly and vulnerable mm. um, in person when you met him. And I think that's what kind of made his music so great too. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had him on the show back in 2017. Um, and we thought we would replay that performance this week. So, this was recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. It's Justin Towns Earl. Rest in peace. Hey there, welcome to Livewire.
6: Glad to be here.
0: Um, we are extremely big Justin Towns Earl fans in our house. Um, Thank you. But I also want to ask you about, uh, about the, the musical lineage that you come from. You know, your dad's a, a well-known musician. Is that something that has been um, help, that's helped you in your career, or has it been a source of some frustration?
6: Um, I, I think, personally, it's helped me in my career. My My dad was not... He wasn't around a lot, but when he was, he was very hard on me when it came to songwriting. Very hard on me. I mean... And you know, I'd come to him and play him a song, and he'd be like, uh, "Not there." And he'd he'd say stuff like, uh, "Keep trying, kid," you know, things like that. Which was, you know, I knew right from the start that I had something to live up to that very few you, you should not try to live up to. If you want to try to live up to Towns Van Zant, then let me uh, give you your receipt for your fool's errand.
0: Uh, that sounds like a complicated relationship So if you say he wasn't around much But when he was there he was being pretty critical
6: Well that's the thing is If he had been critical about how I should live my life Then I would have probably been pretty pissed off But if he was critical about how I wrote songs Denying that Steve Earle Denying that Towns Van Zandt are great songwriters I don't give a damn if you're related to him or not You're just wrong huh. And, and thinking that you're going to live up to them think, and thinking that you're going to write the Great American Folk Song. Guy Clark and my dad told me the same thing. Stop trying to write the Great American Folk Song and
0: you'll write good songs. How old were you when you got that advice? Thirteen. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's an early education. Um, what song are you going to play here? Maybe a moment, I think. Uh, this is Justin Towns Earl here on Live Wire, everybody. Mm-hmm.
5: Get in the car front with me No, there's nothing to do around here during the weekend So we're going to Memphis to get out of town Going to Memphis to mess around I've got a bottle of Thunderbird in the trunk I know a place if there's anything you want This old man runs a store, he'll sell anything to anyone But I don't know what time he closes up So think about it But baby, don't take too much time Maybe only a moment But maybe time of your life Boys might look rough But they're not tough to me and you Though they can be crude like the girl, less things going on about He just said she's got a pretty mouth So you see now What I'm dealing with and how's the old saying going With friends like this Don't worry, we all gotta do Back by morning time Maybe only a moment Maybe a time of your life brother, you don't scare me Why should we tell your mama anything? If I'm bothering you, let me know Ain't we damn near grown Maybe it's Tuesday Maybe it's damn near midnight Maybe only a moment But maybe time of your life your moment, maybe the time of your life.
0: That was Justin Towns Earl, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater back in 2017. He passed away this week at the age of Thirty-eight. That is going to do it for this episode of the LiveWire House Party. A big thanks, as always, to our guests, Chioki Iansen, Leah Satili, and, of course, Justin Towns Earl. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Fully, Alaska Airlines, and the Jupiter Hotel.
4: Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sepchenko. Amy McCormick is our development director. And Ariana Donneville is our marketing associate. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Sam Tucker, Ethan Fox Tucker, and A. Walker Spring, who also composed our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixed this episode along with Corey Schreppel. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake.
0: Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. LiveWire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members this week. We would like to thank member Judy Clark of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or find out how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire team. Thank you so much for listening.